Hi, everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by clicking subscribe and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today in the chair we have Simon. Simon is 42 years old and currently lives in Melbourne, Australia. He's in recovery from alcohol addiction and his sobriety date is the 22nd of August 2016. Simon and I met in recovery about a year ago and his story is such a powerful one that I was really hoping he would agree to come on the show and share this with you all and he has done that. So without any further delay, I would love to welcome Simon onto the show. Simon, welcome to Behind the Smile. Good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so good to have you here and I'm so glad that we were able to get you here before you Take your big move, but uh, yeah. we'll get to that in a little bit. How are you feeling today? Mm, I'm all right. It's yeah. the, the midst of um, moving, which we'll talk about, I suppose. Moving, the busiest time of year at work, everything else in life, all crammed into a couple of weeks. Yeah, we like to Feels do things good. all at once, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. All righty. Well, before we dive into the photo that I've asked you to bring in today... I'd really love for our listeners to get a little bit more about you, what you're about. So can we start off with you sharing where you live, what you do for work and what do you do for fun? Okay. Um, 42 years old. I live in, in Melbourne. I, uh, I've lived in seven different places in Melbourne over the last year. What? Yeah, I have. Um, so we can talk about that in a minute, but that, that's been part of the process of um, realising my dream over the last few years. Um, what do I do for fun? I look, I do a lot of fitness stuff, keeps me sane. Um, I'll read a whole bunch of random stuff. I'll do a lot of hiking, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, a lot of fitness stuff, especially yeah. for fun. Yeah. Awesome. And is that something that you discovered in recovery or were you always a bit of a fitness <laughs> fanatic? <laughs> I was not a fitness <laughs> fanatic before I got here. I had a friend show me... Um, uh, sell me on the benefits. A guy, and, you know, a friend of mine in recovery that said, um, you'll love CrossFit because you just you show up and they tell you what to do and then you get fit and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> oh, awesome. So, so good. So, like we said, we'll dive into your story around all of these moves and what's happening in a little bit. But 
As we do with all episodes, I would love to kick this off by taking a look at the photo that you've brought in today. So Simon, I asked you to bring in a photo from a time in your life where your insides didn't match your outsides. Mm. So you were hiding behind a smile. You've brought this photo in with you today, but I haven't seen it yet. So I'd love to take okay. a look at it now. Here we go. Mm. So it's funny because there's not a lot of photos from that era, you know, from... Um, you look really different. Late 20s, early 30s, there wasn't a lot of photos. Yeah. Because there'd have to be people around to do that, first of all. Yeah, yeah. and so you were alone a lot? Um, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, probably. That's mm. one way to put it. Can you describe for our listeners what I'm looking at right now and what was going on for you at that time? Um, so this is one of the times that uh, things had sort of lined up in my life where I was – um, basically everything I'd put into my life for, for study, um, I'd, I'd gotten my degree, I was working a corporate job at this point in the pharmaceutical industry, and this was just in that era. So it was the era where um, I put everything I could into achieving what society told me I needed, which was a degree, the job, the money, the partner and stuff like that, and uh, I was pretty dead inside. Mm. That's where it was in that regard. So... I mean, externally, I had the stuff you needed, but uh, internally, <laughs> not so much. And did that show up as depression, anxiety? Were you trying to self-medicate at the time or had you just found alcohol early and realised that that would get you by? This was the point where I realised that um, there was often a, a thing where I didn't have, uh, felt like I didn't have enough. Like the, the drinking and stuff like that was a means to an end. Mm-hmm. It was to quiet my head so I could achieve so I could hold down a job at the end of the week. If there was that stress, re- residual stress or whatever, I'd get rid of the stress and then I could um, study and things like that. But the end game, which, which had been sort of um, sold to me by my parents' society, things like that, were you go and get the job, uh, get the degree, get the job, things like that, and once you're there, you'll be happy. And that was not the case. Mm. Mm. And at what point did you start to realise that you'd been told a lie? Um, there was never a point where I was where I got there and I thought, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there wasn't a point. There was never – I can't ever imagine a time – I can't remember a time where I thought, oh, everything's – that's exactly right. We need to keep it like this. It, it just wasn't like that. So mm. um, I guess the delusion I had was that w- when I got there, I wouldn't have that thing – in my head, I drank because I was unhappy mm. and then I had the stuff around me that I needed and I was still drinking. So mm. something else was happening and that was deeply upsetting at the time. And then mm. I lost everything anyway. Mm. Sounds like we'll be getting to that when we talk about that rock bottom. All right. I'd love to take a step back now. Can we go back to your childhood for a moment? Mm. Was there anything that stands out to you as being a significant moment or incident that perhaps shaped your experiences and your formation into adulthood? Mm. Um, there's nothing specific. I think um, the thing that stands out to me is that I've got three younger brothers. Um, I was born in Australia. We moved when I was quite young to the States. I was um, the Australian kid in America and then the American kid in Australia when we moved back. And in some ways I used to think, well, that's what did it. That's what Because I always felt uneasy. Like you'd show up and the other kids, 
I didn't even understand the Australian accent when I moved back here. They're asking me questions. I don't know what they're asking me. Uh, how long were you over there for? Uh, six years, which yeah. is half my life at the time. Yeah. It's, it's but I think, I think the, the thing that stood out to me was that uh, the three younger brothers didn't have the same experience as me and they had the same experience as me. So, yeah. so they seem to have found it relatively easy, I don't know. If they, I don't know if they found it relatively easy, but they didn't have the same um, challenges as me, I guess, with mm. that sort of stuff. I'm not sure. Mm. So when did your relationship with alcohol begin? Um, it started um, probably around the same time as most people, like mid-teens. I didn't enjoy it to start with. I, I certainly didn't enjoy it. Mm. And there was a, an element of um, yeah, I, I I couldn't tell. You. I've heard in AA before. Oh, the first time I drank, everything was perfect. That didn't happen for me. Yeah. Couldn't even tell you um, the the first time it was enjoyable or anything like that. But I know that um, as I moved into my late teens, um, it was not possible for me to go out and not be drinking. Mm. Yeah. So for you, was it really about having that social lubricant? Um, I needed that. Because I was deeply uneasy at all times. I didn't know that at the time. And there were some other circumstances where, you know, I was diagnosed with ADD in my teens and then they prescribed medication for that. And the thing that I, you know, when you're a teenager, they tell you like drugs are, they're not good. They're not going to help you. And then they put me on this medication and I start doing really well at school. Mm. And then, you know, I'm told you don't want to drink. Because you do stupid stuff, but then I was having a whole lot of fun with that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of these things where uh, my life started getting better initially mm. in in that thing where I was drinking or on medication and stuff like that. And, and I was confused why people were saying it was a bad idea because mm. it didn't feel like it at the time. Mm. Mm. What did alcohol do for you? And what I mean by that is what kind of drinker were you? Um, not a gentleman. <laughs> Uh, I would drink um, – I'd get a bottle of bourbon and try and put the entire thing away. Mm. So it wasn't sipping it. It was um, – I was basically I, – I didn't enjoy – I knew from a very early point in time, um, I couldn't have verbalised it, that I had problems controlling the amount I drank. I would have um, – you know, you had like the cool friends. Like you'd go to like um, – you know, your friend's place or whatever, and the parents would say, oh, do you want a beer with lunch? And I would refuse. And I don't know, I didn't know why at the time, but what I know now is that if I, like, why would you want one? Because mm. <laughs> I'm going to have one beer at lunch. Like, that's going to be terrible. Now I'm stuck. Yeah. And I can't have more. I've heard you talk about this a lot, and I love the way you describe it. Can you go into that a little bit more for me, why the idea when we're an alcoholic, the idea of one is actually torture. We'd rather have none. Oh, I'd I'd absolutely rather have none. This is why I do better now, not drinking, because it's easier for me to have none than one. Having one, look, I had a sponsor early on and he put it to me really well. He said, all right, we'll do we'll do a thought experience. You, you have to stay at my place for a week. On the first day, you can have one beer. The second day, you can have three. The third day, whatever I feel like. The fourth day, you can have six beers. The day after that, you can have half a beer. And the day after that, you can have half a beer. How does that sound? Terrible. It horrible. Like terrible. <laughs> like, can I have them all at the start? He's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> and it's just, it's terrible. And and to other people, like to my partner or people that aren't, um, that don't have the same thing in my head, like that's like, uh, they do it all the time. Yeah. They just, it's not a thing. 
And yeah. to somebody that doesn't, yeah, it's it's. Um, so for me, early on, when somebody was offering me one beer, um, I don't want that. Mm. And it's very easy when you're a teenager to align yourself with the people that drink a lot because it's basically everybody. That was going to be my next question. As a teenager, was your behaviour or the way you drank different to those around you or had you surrounded yourself with people that drank and looked and did everything like you? No, no, it looked different. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I would often be the one that would pass out or something like that. It was never like, oh, we've got to invite Simon around. Like it was, it was, there was a strong chance that there was going to be a problem. Were you a bit of a liability? Um, yes, mm. yeah. It wasn't, um, yeah, I, c- I can think of numerous occasions where, um, yeah, I just drink until, like I've never, I've never drank a lot and then the next day somebody said to me, you did the nicest thing yesterday. Like none of that's happened. Whenever I drink too much, something bad happens. Mm, yeah. There's always consequences. And so you're going through your teenage years, you're drinking and then as you mentioned, you then went to university and you got the degree and you started ticking all of life's boxes, the things mm-hmm. that we're told that we need to be happy. So for you, was there any sort of red flags or any thoughts that you might have had a problem or was that all dulled down because you were still able to achieve everything that you were meant to be achieving? Mm, there were red flags. Okay, what did um, they look like? Well, initially I was doing a, a degree at Melbourne Uni and the the, uh, the partying was catching up with me at one point and I'd completely failed a year and I had to show up and, and answer in front of a board and I remember my mum driving me up there and I got to the thing and I hadn't I didn't have shoes. <laughs> so um, so we had to go to the chemist and buy these like kind of straw shoes or something. I remember thinking like, man, this is a problem. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I had to I, – I got through that and they gave me another chance and I failed again. But, mm. yeah, there was that – there was – when you don't show up to a year of university and then you show up in straw shoes, you might be an alcoholic. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> How was it impacting your relationships at the time? Um, definitely with the family it was ne- negative. Um, a lot of the friends I had, at the, like I'd let the high school friends go by then. So most of the high school friends were gone. Um, so it was certainly, um, it, it, there were negative consequences on my family, but it hadn't ground them down yet. And was anyone asking you to stop or suggesting that maybe taking a break would be a good idea? Mm. No. It's so crazy. I often ask people that question and the answer is always no. Mm. Isn't it interesting? Mm. I wonder whether it's because within our society, within our culture, heavy drinking is celebrated Mm -hmm. and normalised or whether people just shy away from the difficult conversations. I'm still trying to work it out. What do you think? Um, I might not have heard it. That's mm. the first possibility. Mm. I'm sure there were people saying we're a bit worried about you. Mm. Um, but I think if I – look, I mean, I see 23-year-olds. I work with a whole bunch of 23-year-olds at my work. Um, they probably go through the same drinking patterns as I did mm. and they're going to be fine. So, mm. I mean, most of the – if I didn't know better, I would just think it was a phase. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it looks like. I mean, in every other area of my life, it's just a phase and I grow out of it or whatever happens. But that wasn't – this was getting worse. And so at what point did you realise that maybe it wasn't just a phase? Mm. 
early 30s, but just after that photo. So what was going on for you at that time? Well, so it took um, – there was some false starts in between because it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a precipitous dive towards the bottom. There was, there was peaks and troughs. It wasn't a steady line to the bottom. Mm. There was times where I held down a job for a long period of time. There was times where I didn't work for an entire year. There was certainly that sort of stuff. Because you were drinking? Because I wasn't drinking. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, I, I just couldn't um, – the outlet that I had in the world, like there had to be a certain amount of things happening. Like I needed um, – I had some mental health challenges, so I needed to be on medication for that. I needed to be drinking just uh, so I could take the edge off, so to speak. But there there was a whole bunch of those behaviours that needed to line up just right, like the, the scale of justice, if you want. Like on one side, that needed to weigh up. And then on the other side, I needed to be able to function and have the money to do this. And if, if all those things, you know, necessities for me didn't line up, then I just wouldn't participate. Like I couldn't do it. I could, like I'd just wake up in the morning and think I can't do this. Mm. And that could go for months. Mm. Do you think that's part of the disease of alcoholism? The entire, the entire reason that I drank was to function in the world. It was not to seek oblivion. Mm. Yeah. Like I enjoy a lot, a lot of parts of the world and, the, and my primary drive, which and it still is in a lot of ways, is to you know to achieve and to help people in my in my role and that was my that was my goal it's been my goal for many years but um, yeah I, I wasn't drinking to seek oblivion at all it was mm. to function or even to have fun or party no 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 it was to function like it's great to connect with other people and stuff like that but it wasn't that thing where I wanted to do that and this is where I think people that don't have a lot of information around what alcoholism and addiction is I think this is where a lot of misunderstanding is so can you talk a little bit more because I think you explain this really really well about this disease that lives in our minds and why we drink as opposed to why we find life harder without it there's a saying that I love um, when people kill themselves they don't shoot themselves in the foot they shoot themselves in the head because the noise is so much like the the noise in your head is so much that you, you'll just do anything to stop it. Mm. And if you can drink and do that, then that's what somebody's going to do. And that's what I did. Mm. Like if you can take, like the one thing that, um, here's my problem. I'll speak for my problem. And this is what I understand alcoholism to be. If I had one of the two things, so I have this thing where I don't control the amount I drink. Easy. I don't drink. Right. But then I got this other thing where um, I don't sort of stay stopped. Right. So if I just had one of those things, like I could have the depression, the anxiety or whatever, I could have the crappy job and then I could finish the job and go and have six beers and stop. Like I could just have six beers and take the edge off and, that, and go to bed and function the next day. Mm. That's not what I do. Mm. So if I could just shut the noise up to a certain degree and function, that would be fine. Mm. That's not what happens. What happens for you? I keep drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's no um, – there's no certainty to how my behaviour is going to show if I drink. And was it inconsistent? As in, could you were there occasions where maybe you could have one or two and stop, mm. and then other times it would be an all nighter, and there was that uncertainty? Um, yeah. Look, the, the last time that happened was like. Saddam Hussein was still in power. I remember that. It was like December 2003. <laughs> like it was one mm. of those times where 
I went out and, and drank and everything was fine. It was a long time ago. Like I knew by uh, mid-20s, early 20s that this was a problem, that it was a huge problem. But what am I going to do? Mm. Like not drink? Did that thought ever cross your mind? Um, it certainly crossed my mind when the consequences were enough, but it wasn't feasible because nobody was telling me how it was going to get done. It's like saying to me, um, well, you're overweight, just don't eat ever again. <laughs> like That doesn't seem like a solution to me. Like it needs to be more thought out. Mm. And nobody was saying to me like, um, yep, used to be in your position and this is what I did. Mm. Everyone was saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know what you want to do, mm. but this is not good. Mm. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason that – this podcast exists and that I have people like you come onto the show is to start to talk about this stuff because, you know, 2016 wasn't that long ago mm. in the scheme of things and yet in those years leading up to that you had this problem and you had nowhere to go or you mm. had no examples in front of you of what to do mm. and that still blows my mind. So I didn't seek any medical help for this either because it seemed like a moral dilemma to me. Like it seemed like, well, I just won't do it. And then I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And, doing and then it. there's the shame attached to that and the punishment. Yeah, the shame, but also like, um, yeah, I guess it's the shame of it. It's yeah. certainly that thing where um, I should be in control of my actions. Mm. And you, did you feel like a failure? Mm. Not from that, more from the stuff I lost. Because mm. it's very hard to hold employment and stuff like that with this uh, mindset. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, so when I saw it, um, like I didn't consider seeking medical help or anything like that. Like I would, I would see a psychiatrist and stuff and they'd give you antidepressants and because st- I thought I drank because I was depressed. Mm. Yeah. And then they'd, you know, like they'd try and treat the depression and stuff like that. And it wasn't that I was holding back information. Like I don't know what's pertinent. Like I think my problem's depression. I don't think it's drinking. I think I'm drinking because I'm depressed. Treat my depression, mm. and then the the drinking will sort out. And obviously, I'm still depressed because I'm still drinking. And then I've got the anxiety and stuff. And there was never. I don't know the right question to ask. Yeah. And I'm also not going to go and say that I'm drinking too much because then, <clears throat> what are the you know the consequences of that? Mm. Like I don't think they know how to treat it. It turns out they don't know how to treat it when you do that. But um, there was never. Yeah, I'd never met anyone and I like I'm quite well versed in how a lot of the medical procedures and medications and stuff work and it was never the closest I came was taking a medication that um would uh, naltrexone it was called and it was to block the uh endorphins and stuff when you would drink and um I started taking that for maybe 3 or 4 days and then I thought oh if I stop taking this I could drink again and I just started drinking again. Yeah, that one is a really interesting one, isn't it? I know that it can work for some people, but I think that it needs to be supported with something else, either a program or connection or support or something. Otherwise, exactly right. You'll just think to yourself or your mind will tick over and say, you know what, it probably wasn't that bad Mm. or next time will be different. And so you come off the medication and then you drink again or you drink on the medication. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you're getting to this point where – it seems like you can't live with it and you can't live without it. You wake up every morning with this noisy head and so the only solution for that is to take a drink. Hmm. Is that something that you would do first thing in the morning or would you be able to get through the day and then start drinking? It wasn't a first thing in the morning. 
Mm. Um, I was more three out of 14 days. So, like, it would be, like, three days, um, like a weekend every two weeks. Where you'd go like hard. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that Thank you for sharing that because, again, I think there's this misconception that alcoholics drink every day and that they drink around the clock and that's just simply not the case. Mm. If you could explain in your words what an alcoholic is, encompassing that kind of behaviour and the thought process and the allergy, how would you describe it? Um, the way I describe it, the way I understand it and have experienced it is that I want to ease the emotional distress I've got in my head. It's very noisy. If I have a couple drinks, it'll be more quiet, which is what I do. And then I have a couple drinks and I need to keep drinking. Mm. That's the problem. If I could stop, then I would. Mm. But the problem is is that um, I don't know any other way to shut my head up. Mm. Um, and the longer I go without drinking or at the time, I mean, not so much, definitely not now, but back then, the longer I went without drinking, it was like not eating. Yeah, it was like not eating food and then if you haven't eaten food for a week, you're going to smash it. Like you're (laughs) going to eat a lot. You don't get less hungry (laughs) the more you don't eat. I think it's such a brilliant way to explain that phenomenon of craving. Mm. Yeah. And then what happened in those days, say the 10 days where you weren't drinking? Non-functional. Okay, and yeah. that's when you Depressed, wouldn't be showing up sleep. to work. Yeah, yeah. which well. is what tells, which is what told me at the time, um, I must be depressed. Mm. So, when was the first time that you maybe thought to yourself, "I might be an alcoholic"? Was there a rock bottom? Mm. There was similar ones that kept happening. Like I'd have, um, I'd move back with my parents. It was only meant to be for a week or two and it never would be. And then um, after a few months they would kick me out in spectacular fashion, which is not its not an indictment of them, but it was the way things went. And um, the same circumstance happened three times yeah, over the space of 15 years. So it kept happening. Mm-hmm. The same thing kept happening. Yeah. And at what point did you decide to get help? Mm. I didn't like I, some of it was um, uh, I probably got sober out of spite initially because my family had kicked me out. And I just thought, well, this sucks. I'm going to show them they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, you know, like I had nothing. Um, I had nowhere else to go. Like I, there, there were no other options. I didn't go into rehab. I didn't do any of that stuff. Mm. I showed up to AA um, <laughs> in a suit. Like I didn't want people thinking I was unemployed, so I had this suit and I'm like, well, they'll think I've been at work or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't Delusion. been employed for a year or two, but um, I just remember showing up like that. And um, How did you even know where to go? Because I'd done a detox a few years earlier okay. in one of the similar circumstances. I'd uh, My partner at the time put me in a detox. And I was very surprised they let me in. I'm like, oh, this is for serious addiction. Mine isn't. You know, I was quite surprised at the mm. time. And people from AA came in and, and talked and I just, like I remembered it. I don't know why, but I just, I remembered the part where he came in, the guy came in and said all his stuff and then he got to go home. He got to go home and I couldn't leave. Mm. And I was I was really sad because I, I thought this guy's, you know, it was clear he knew what we, he was talking about. Like it was quite um, evident that he wasn't one of the workers. Mm. 
because the workers are there and they don't necessarily have experience. But this guy was coming in and he said, you know, that um, he'd got sober through AA and then he went home. Mm. And that was, um, that was pretty sad to me because even when I was getting out of there, I couldn't go home. Like mm. I wasn't allowed home. Mm. Yeah. So you've been kicked out of your family home for the third time in 15 years and you decide to show up to an AA meeting. Mm. What happened then? Um, I dabbled slightly with the AA stuff earlier. There was a couple of meetings I'd done, but I showed up um, and I don't remember what was said at the meeting, but I remember after a couple of members showed up and introduced themselves and um, I didn't understand why. Like they wanted, I didn't know if they were hitting on me or what. Like it was <laughs> like two guys that come up and ask me out for coffee. I'm like, oh, I don't know, guys. Yeah. Um, but it was really nice and I still remember them and I, they're friends of mine to this day. But, um, like, I, I didn't necessarily see how it was going to help me. But at the time, I'd been so um, disconnected from any – like, I didn't really have friends mm. um, and I was very disconnected socially. So to go there um, was fun. Like, it was actually fun. Mm. And, it, and, I, and I hung around a couple months because I was on some medication – so I didn't really get sober until a couple of months later. This was late June 2016 mm-hmm. and I got sober in late August. And in that time, I, I guess I got to know people and I saw that it was a lot of fun and I never showed up and thought, oh, this is going to suck. Like it looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. Like there was always meetings on. I was living in St Kilda. Yeah, It was all this stuff. I don't know what happened, but something happened in my head where I was like, this is a way out. This this will probably work. Wow. Yeah. What an awesome outlook and attitude to have towards it because I think a lot of people probably through fear or misinformation, their head tells them not to lean into it. And so you see people struggle for years in and out, in and out. But in the limited time that I've been around, what I've noticed is that if people throw themselves Mm. into AA wholeheartedly Mm – and particularly that point around connection and connection with others, if they really commit to meeting people, making friends, making phone calls, staying connected, then they seem to grasp it and things seem to become a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable than if you stay on the outer, on the outer circle yeah. dipping your toe in. That's my experience. N- none of my, um, you know, like my, intu- my intuition in that regard was never to do that. Mm. Um, like I don't intuitively want to go in the middle – of a whole bunch of strangers and stuff like that. But um, the direction I think that I heard at the time was to do everything the opposite of what I'd normally do was. Yeah. And, um, I mean, part of why I chose this photo was because this was around the time where um, something had ch- – the, the photo happened in um, – this photo is from start of 2012, mm. right? This is the point where, like, I knew that it wasn't um, – a not enough alcohol problem because often it was kind of like oh, I can't afford the amount that I need and I was I, you know I had what society told me I needed and I had the money and stuff like that and I used to pace the balcony of this penthouse that I lived in South Bank wanting to jump mm-hmm. like just really really bottomed out and I used to look at this slightly nicer apartment like it was slightly higher up and he he was like a cocaine dealer or something I don't know like he was he had a, a <laughs> sports car and stuff like that and he was you know, this um, this neighbour was doing slightly better than me. I, I remember thinking, like, yeah, I bet you this guy's happy, you know? Yeah. And um, 
the th- the thing that um you know it's sliding doors in some ways like if the, if that experience hadn't have happened then when I got to AA this next thing that I'm going to tell you about wouldn't mean as much because I asked this guy to sponsor me I won't say his name but he had a suit mm. like that it was his suit it wasn't like the suit that I was wearing it wasn't like a it was, rental yeah yeah it wasn't a <laughs> rental or an estate sale or something like that it was quite clear that he owned this suit and I asked him to sponsor me because there was a point where you know I was twelve days sober and. I thought, well, this is this is this is I'm making too much out of this because um, I'm 12 days sober. I'll just not drink, and then I woke up that morning and my head was telling me to drink, and I knew I was going to. Mm. So I rang this guy who uh, ended up being my sponsor, and you know, we, he gave me some um, conditions, but he started bringing me through the program. Mm. I remember saying to him, "I don't think you know what I'm going through," and he was saying, "You think you're the only person wanting to." that used to pace your balcony wanting to jump. And I'm like, as far as I'm concerned, yes, I've never heard anybody else say that. And he shared with me the same story. I'm like, wait a minute. And he was the crazy upstairs co- cocaine dealer. So that was the guy. What? And he was a te- like he was a difficult guy at the time, yeah. So he was he's the sort of guy that would like, if you were smoking a cigarette, he'd take the cigarette and take a drag as he looked you in the eye and then he'd stamp it out. You know, like not, <laughs> not the nicest guy. And he was the neighbour at the time. And, and the, one of the things that convinced me that AA was going to work was he, he was not the greatest dude mm. when I knew him. And here he was. He was like three or four years sober and he had shared the exact same experience. So essentially what he said was as he was walking the east balcony of this address in City Road in South Bank of the penthouse wanting to jump, I was 10 metres away on the west balcony pacing the balcony mm. wanting to jump. How could I argue that he doesn't get it? He's had the exact same the exact mm. same experience as mm. me. Mm. So how's it not going to work? And also, it just highlights, doesn't it, that there's always going to be more in terms of the things, the externals. And when you get to this, like if you haven't done the deep inner work to work, like to actually heal what's going on in the inside, you'll always be chasing more. And then mm-hmm. you you reach that achievement or level of success, or you get that car, that house, and then you want more. Mm. And it's never ending. The secret, I think, is to really find that inner peace, that inner contentment. Mm. And then you actually don't really care about the stuff. Mm. It's still okay to want the stuff. Like, you know, we don't get sober to live small lives. Mm. It's not part of the condition as far as I know. But that striving, when I I get this, I'll be better, Mm. that seems to fall away. So the thing that I, I'm not going to say his name, but the thing that I um, admired most about my sponsor at the time was the ease that he did the thing with me, that he did with me, because what he did was he taught me what he did to get well. Mm. And he did it at noon. It was noon every Tuesday and I'd have to get a tram there and, you know, we'd go through the work, but it was like one hour out of his 24 hours and he did it so casually. Mm. You know, he was just like, you'll be fine and blah, blah, blah. And I do that now. Yeah. Like my the guys that I sponsor are like, oh, you saved my life. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, every Tuesday at noon. You know, like it's it's not that big a deal to me because I'm just mm. passing it on. Mm. And that level of just like casually saving somebody's life and then moving on to save the next one and stuff, like that's what I wanted at the time, to have a purpose. Yeah. And there was that um, – so no, the, the penthouse doesn't work, the car doesn't work, none of that. Mm. Casually saving somebody's life, I yeah, that's pretty cool. Take like, that any day yeah. of the way. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you 
came in around June, but you didn't get sober until August and you mentioned medication. I just want to circle back to that for a minute because I think some listeners might be mm. have a question mark around that. Sure. Where do you sit with the abstinence-based model, which is what 12-step programs are about, and taking medication or mm. other drugs or where do you sit? Yeah, yeah. Um, my position on that is that there's um, – you can absolutely be on medication if it's prescribed. I mean, everything's got – you're going to pay a consequence for everything. You might There might be a consequence for taking the medication. There might be a consequence for not taking the medicine. I think the most – like I've been prescribed medication before um, in recovery, like psychiatric medication. I've come off psychiatric medication, including antidepressants. I'm not saying anybody should do that or, or, or could do that. You talk to your doctor about it. Mm. But my position with that stuff is that um, – Although I know that medicine has some of the answers, I don't think it has all the answers because it didn't have the answers for me mm. when I got sober. Like they threw a whole bunch of medications at me to keep me functional while I was drinking and everything like that. But then as I'm going into recovery, like me personally, I don't want to be on 20 milligrams of Valium a day. Like I don't want to live like that. Mm. My um, benchmark for that is... If I needed to go to Alaska tomorrow for a month, hiking or something like that, can I do it? Am I going to die somewhere in the wilderness because I'm dependent on a medication? Mm. That's that's how it stands for me. Mm. I think there's medication that helps a whole lot of people. Um, I don't think it's necessarily at, at odds, mm. but it, um, my position is it needs to be prescribed and I guess the caveat I have with all that is that you have, for me, I have a doctor that's an addiction doctor. Because there's, there's a bit of a, 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 a canyon of um, misinformation between like addiction and medicine. Mm. There's this misunderstanding like, um, well, if you need Valium, you could have Valium. Like, Yeah, and look, even recently this year, like I've known somebody that's gone back and taken prescription medication and it's led to a relapse. Mm -hmm. So my position with that, and this is my experience after being around for six and a half years and observing this stuff, and this is stuff I've gone through as well because I've reached – like I've had a partner die. Like she killed herself a year and a half ago, um, her next partner at the time. Um, absolutely shattered, absolutely shattered. And, um, you know, after I was, you know, going through all the grief and stuff like that and well-meaning doctors were saying, well, maybe you need to be on an antidepressant. And my position with that is, no, I think this is something I'm going to feel now or I'm going to feel it later mm. and it's probably better I feel it now. Um, I just think that whenever I've used a drug or medication to stop me feeling something, it comes back later. Yeah, and often it comes out sideways. Yeah, when I don't want it. Yeah. At least I know it's going to come out now. Yeah. Um, so what are the things or the tools that you have to support you when you're going through those really difficult feelings in sobriety? Everybody knows what's going on. I have at least six people that always know. Like I've got friends of mine. I have a sponsor. I have a GP. I've got a psychologist. I've got a psychiatrist. I've got an addiction medicine doctor. They don't. They're not all waiting in the in you know like the closet <laughs> waiting to come out and stuff like that. Like these are busy people and they don't all talk amongst each other. But certainly the medical ones do. You know, like the psychologist and the psychiatrist will talk. Not a high needs patient in that regard. 
but I don't think I'm the best judge of um, providing what's relevant. So I just provide the information and they can decide. Because mm. I, I think that I have the capability, even at six and a half years of sobriety, to hold back on pertinent bits of information that I don't think are important and somebody else might see it coming. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. It comes back to that whole idea of, you know, you can't – if we have this affliction mm. and we're using the brain that we've got that has this affliction to make decisions about the affliction, it's not going to be a good end result. No. So we need to no. outsource that stuff. The biggest um, benefit I've had from being in this fellowship and in the program is that – it's very rare that I end up in a position of should I or shouldn't I, as in should I have a drink or shouldn't I? Mm. Should I, you know, take Valium or shouldn't I? Um, it's very rare, but when it comes up, the answer is a resounding no. Mm. That's essentially what happens. So from an outside perspective of people not understanding the disease, the way that I categorise it is that before doing this program, I was one of these people that wouldn't, not want to drink and it would the idea would come into my head and I would do it like if I was having the argument in my head I would do it mm. I don't have the argument in my head anymore I'm not quite sure how that works but that's been my experience mm. it's pretty incredible isn't it that that obsession is just somewhat removed yeah you know like part of what I like to talk about and, and you've heard me talk about this at meetings is um, the guys I sponsor and in my program like I'm big about putting in the action to wind back the the carnage that I that I caused in the past because a lot of the carnage that I caused was to my family and it wasn't like direct violence or anything like that but it was the heartache that I caused the financial difficulties like there's a ton of stuff that this disease causes and I'm really big on going back and making that right mm. and I think that's there's not there's that clarity that you get from redemption, mm. you know, confession, redemption, whatever it is, that these have always been things that have been part of like whether it's a religious experience or spiritual experience, yeah. but it's the hardest thing in the world. It's the craziest idea in the world <laughs> to go and tell somebody that you screwed them over and to make it right and make yourself 100% vulnerable, but at no point do I ever consider that again and think, man, you're a piece of shit. Mm. Like I never think that about myself because I've made it right. Yeah, and all of a sudden you're free. Mm. So it's not like this is this mystical program where we, you know, find God and God forget. Like I've had to put in a lot of work yeah. and I've never heard God speak or anything like that. But I've had, you know, crazy experiences where I've had like a bird land on me and come home. And I don't quite know what that means, but I've never had it happen to me when I'm not in recovery. Yeah. I've had these crazy things happen where, you know, I've got to um, make things right with old employers and tell them that, I wasn't the best employee or something like that and come out of that making that right with them wanting to give me a reference. Like how do you go into a situation and say I was a terrible employee and then 20 minutes later come out of making that right and they're like I want to give you a recommendation. <laughs> how does that work? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? How has this evolved Simon repaired his relationships? Um. The way that I've repaired the relationships was to go like the program's quite clear in you cho you you write down the people you've harmed and you you have a fearless um, approach at making that right. Um, most of mine is 
making that right financially. A, a lot of mine, it was, you know, I wasn't uh, looking after my own financial obligations, whether that's like a credit card or something like that. You know, that's the ongoing stuff. But to repair those relationships, like I had to own up to what I'd done, which I'd never done before. Mm. It was never my fault. Mm. You know, like even if I took out a credit card for, for let's say, five grand mm-hmm. and then I don't pay it back, in my head I'm like, well, I needed that money. That's what I thought at the time. There wasn't much thought to it. Whereas now it's like pay back the $5,000. You just pay it back even though I don't know who to pay it to. You just pay it back. Yeah. I completely relate to the blame game. I used to always blame everyone but myself. Like it was always my partner's fault or my family's fault and I could never just take ownership. And now these days, like I'm always looking out for where I may have played a part and it's such it's such a huge shift in mindset and perspective, which I think is one of the biggest gifts of recovery is like we just seem to look at the world through a different lens. Mm. But – uh, what you were talking about with this redemption process is just like for me that sense of freedom, knowing that I can walk down the street and I'm not going to bump into someone who doesn't like me or holds a grudge against me, I hope. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like we do, we do what we can each and every day to right the wrongs and to keep moving forward and to keep being better each yeah. and every day. To me the world was always coming at me. Like I felt like I was – I had no control. Mm. Like not only that I didn't have control of my drinking – but that I didn't have control of any of the circumstances in my life. Like I just felt like it was happening and I always find it interesting that as soon as I took responsibility for my actions, that part of me that had no control over drinking was gone. Mm. Like there was that thing where I don't have control over drinking, I don't have control over my actions and then I took control of my actions and I had control over my drinking. Yeah, and I think what you're explaining here is just such an important message around like it's, it really isn't enough just to stop drinking. No, are you kidding me? (laughs) I love that. Whenever I hear that, you know, like people say, yeah, I haven't drank for six months. It's like, but it's it's carnage, like what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was the experience with my ex. You know, he got sober and for for six months didn't do a program Mm. and and I, towards the end, said like, you're you're actually worse, Mm. you know, and Mm. he's, he's now got over a year and he's doing really, really well. But... That time or that period of time where he was sober but not working a program or doing anything mm. was actually really, really hard. Yeah. Um, the biggest delusion that I've that society brings to this disease, um, when I hear this stuff, whether it comes from parents or well-meaning partners or something like that, they'll say, you've got so much potential. If you would just stop drinking, you'd have so much potential and things did not get better for me. They got worse when I stopped mm. drinking. mm and the, there was that total misunderstanding of the fact that um, it got worse for me because I wasn't treating the underlying stuff, which is what I believe I've done now mm. and continue to do. Question about when you first came in, you obviously, when you became completely abstinent, you set your sobriety date, mm. that noise in your head, did that go away straight away or how long did it take? Um. There were times it, the noise was there because I remember one of the first times where it went quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, might have been three, four months so, but like the noise was there, um, but it wasn't 
like I wouldn't say I was necessarily present, but I was way more present than I was at any other period in time. To be clear, like probably the best year of my life was that first year of being sober. Like it was incredible. Like the colours were brighter and everything like that Mm. and there's very little responsibility and you just sort of, you know, you're just really having fun. Like I was living with a whole bunch of people in the program as well and like one day we got a cat and, you know, like just all (laughs) these random stuff. It's basically like being a kid again. Like that, that stuff was incredible. Was the noise still there? I mean the noise was still there. The noise can still be there. Mm. Yeah. It's just that I don't necessarily have that thing that's saying drink and then I do it because mm. the noise was there. The thing that caused me to drink in the past was the noise was there and then the noise got so much there was this voice, voice, whatever you want to call it, intuitive thought, mm. go and drink. But that thing doesn't happen. The noise can be there but it's not the thing where go and drink. Mm. So what do you do today when the noise comes up? Sometimes it just goes away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like a lot of the times where I'm struggling, and there's some struggle right now because I'm in the midst of moving and everything. There's a whole bunch of a completely new, a completely new chapter in my life is starting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of noise mm. in that regard. I just think it's dishonest to think that it will go away. I think most people have that. Totally. And isn't it just about learning that maybe this is life? Mm. Because I think for me, I was always chasing a good feeling. I Mm. thought that I always needed to feel good. And if I wasn't feeling good, then something was bad. Mm. But life is full of ups and downs, ebbs and flows. Like that's what it is to experience the human condition. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of reprogramming that happens around all of that. And it's not always easy. In fact, a lot of the time it can be really painful and really uncomfortable. But I think you always get an element of growth every time you move through one of those periods. I think the the misunderstanding that I had was that um, similar to what you were saying then is that my actions would be good if I felt good, therefore I always needed to feel good. Mm. Um, whereas the difference now with six and a half years of sobriety and, and you know, 42 years of life experience is that the thing that I do now is that I can feel bad. Like I don't feel great today and I've still shown up. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the, that stuff can pass. So – the, the most growth I've had in the last sort of five years is for my actions not to match the internal emotional state. Like it's possible to show up when you don't feel good. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big – that was something new to me at the time. What's been the most challenging part about getting sober? Mm. I don't think there's been – that much of a challenge in a lot of um i've just had to scan through there's never been a time where it's been there's never been a time where i've wanted to do something else where i thought man i wish i wasn't doing this so i could do that there's never i've never had that and you never think god i wish i could drink again no no Mm -hmm. no i don't actually because i know in my heart i know what it looks like it doesn't bring any relief and then you're stuck with a bigger problem Mm. which is a worst place to be. Mm. Your life has changed so much since 2016. It, it hasn't, it hasn't. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's stayed the same. I suppose what I mean is there's something happening for you around the corner and mm. this move that we keep talking about. Can you tell me a little bit more around yeah. how it has changed? Well, over the, so the last 25 years, most of my 
um, from when I was 17, I was trying to get into medical school. So I, I interviewed for that when I was 17. Um, I started the process when I got sober and, and looked at applying and then I didn't have the grades. So I went back and did another undergrad degree the last few years and then I've got accepted to medical school. So I'm moving out of Melbourne to go to a, a medical school in a different city. It's incredible. I know. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but that's taken 24 years and I don't know that there was any other time in my life where I was ready to show up and do this, um, mainly because of what I spoke about earlier, the part where I can feel bad and still show up. Mm. I've also had that experience of um, knowing that it was funny. They, they, they had an interview, and I don't want to say the exact question because we signed like a non-disclosure, but, they, you know, they do an interview which is really, really difficult to get through. And, and one of the questions was along the lines of, tell me some um, lessons, mistakes you've learned in life. And, one of, and the very first one that I said was that um, one of the biggest mistakes I'd made in life was thinking that wearing a suit and having the job was going to, to fix me and that I was just empty inside. I mean, I've already shared this earlier today. Mm. That was one of the, the most um, formative experiences for me that um, me putting on a white lab coat is not going to fix any of my emotional state. In fact, yeah. it might make it worse because I couldn't imagine getting there and being surprised that I didn't feel better. Because mm. I'm not, that's not, this is not going to fix whatever's happening. Yeah. And I know that now. How are you preparing for that? To go into medicine? To go into medicine and get that degree at the end of it and be Dr. Simon mm. and not get the feeling that you might be chasing. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that's kept me sober over the years is being extremely involved in the fellowship like in the program and helping people in the whether it's the AA community or actually my community outside AA and that's my goal in medicines to be a GP I'm mean, working directly with the community mm. and I know that my background will serve that um, having been through what I've been through and also knowing that you can never really write somebody off like anybody can turn it around um but yeah, to be—I mean, the, my career goal in this regard is to be a GP, to be to be directly involved in my community, mm. and that's exactly what's kept me sober the last six or seven years. It's, it hasn't been to, you know, work on my own and get the suit, get the car, and stuff like that. Because, like I said, that's not going to work. Mm. The more I'm involved with helping other people, um, the better my experience has been. Yeah, and that seems to be what lights up your life. Uh, it does. Because um, I just remember leading up to getting sober when I went to the doctors and was like, look, this is what's happening. I gave them all the information. They had nothing for me. They, the, it wasn't like when I gave them all the information, they said, oh, we got this other medicine we didn't tell you about. They had no solution for me. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to work in as addiction as a doctor. I really don't want to do that. Mm. But I know that um, having been in that situation where just being heard and, um, you know, having somebody that has been through something, sitting there listening, like that, that means a lot. When I, you know, you've got a sponsor that you know has been through yeah. the same set of circumstances as you. I think being in a role where you're a GP and somebody's, been through the ringer, like it's a lot harder if somebody's never been outside their office. I've been outside the office. I've yeah. lived in a car before. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I just think your story is so powerful to know that this dream that you had when you were 17 and it was unattainable and, and essentially you failed when, mm. you, when you went for it, that through getting sober at 42 years old, you're about to actualise that dream. That's mm. incredible. Yeah, to start it, yeah. Was it something that you ever thought would be possible prior to getting sober? No, it's a, the dream seemed to slip away in my early 20s. Mm. Um, even the thought of going back to do another degree, I thought, I'm not doing that, it's too long. Mm. Um, whereas I guess by the time I got sober, the thought of steady hard, hard work in achieving a goal, was it, it's something I'd already done. Mm. Um, mm. So no, look, it didn't seem like it was on the horizon, but this was not, I knew that this was going to happen, I just didn't know how. Yeah. Yeah. So what's something that you know about yourself now that you didn't know about yourself before getting sober, something that you've realised in recovery? Mm. Um, really that people have no idea what's happening internally with somebody else. Mm. Yeah. Just that um, – look, I think, I think the main lesson that I've learned, and I've, I've said this many times over the years, is that um, consistently putting in action independent of how I feel, like even if it doesn't look like it works on a daily basis, it, it works. Mm. Like it's consistently done that for me. Mm. Um, so I guess the main thing that I've learned is that um, being involved with people, even when it's not – necessarily my um, the way I'm aligned for that day there's times where I don't want to talk to people I guess I the, one of the main things I've learned is that I get my strength from people more than I thought mm. and um, yeah that'd be the main thing yeah that's a yeah. big one thanks for sharing that so Simon there is a final question that I love to ask each of my guests and that question is what are your three non-negotiables that you implement in your life today that allow you to live happy, joyous and free? Mm. Um, first one I have always done, if you're familiar with the um, 12-step program, there's, there's a morning routine like a morning meditation and things like that. That has always been, that's always happened. Um, the nighttime thing is my second one. That's always happened. And um, I think the biggest one for me, and this has always been across the last six and a half years, is um, honesty in what's going on. And that doesn't mean that I need to tell my partner 100% of what's going on because some of this stuff is a lot. <laughs> like, you know, for somebody that doesn't have the same headspace as, as uh, you and I, but there needs to be somebody that knows all the information. Mm. Um, that's been my non-negotiable because the things that have almost unstuck me over the years, including um, things like cough syrup, like really b straightforward basic things, like you have COVID, you go and get cough syrup over the counter, doesn't seem like a big deal. For me, it flips something in my head, right? Mm. Now, that could be something that you just think, oh, it was just like, you know, I'd ask my sponsor, could I do it? So I was honest about it. Mm. Something happened. I could have swept that under the carpet and just thought nothing of it, but I was immediately forthcoming with that stuff, not only with the doctors but the sponsor and stuff like that. Mm. Because if nobody else knows that I'm having that internal thing in my head, then they don't know to look out for me. That's exactly right. So that, that pre-active pre or proactive um, 
honesty of like I'm struggling mm. has always been a non-negotiable for me. Um, it's almost like I've just gotten this visualisation as we were talking then about I feel like honesty is like the safety net mm. that surrounds us and the more you practice honesty, the stronger the netting becomes so that when you fall you can be caught but if you don't practice honesty, then that netting is going to be really fine and really yeah. brittle and you'll yeah. fall through it. It's, and it's the little things that start me with that. Like there's, there's tons of stuff I've, I, I can be dishonest about. Like I accidentally gave something away at work the other day and I had to fix it up like a month later. Accidentally gave something away while it was, you know, like we're busy and then like an hour later I thought, man, I've just now I've got to fix that, you know. Mm, like and it's yeah. those little things, whether you give away an iPhone charger or something like that. Like I think those things are non-negotiable because I'm not going to sell out my dream and six and a half years of sobriety over a twenty-five dollar iPhone charger. Yeah, like it's those sort of things to me. Mm. Um, that are, that sort of honesty is non-negotiable, and especially the honesty and what what happens in my life. Yeah, but it's often those little things. It's what we call the white lies mm. that people don't think about, and that's the stuff that catches you out. Mm. But there's that degree of honesty as well. When I spoke about the cough syrup example, um, there's nothing dishonest per se about that, right? Because mm. I've, I've got COVID, I've taken medication for it, I've got permission from a doctor, I've got permission from my sponsor. There's nothing dishonest there. Mm. But the, the thing that's saved me in that regard is being proactive and saying this is what's happening. It's not being dishonest to... to, mm. to um, to not say anything, but it's being dishonest to like my recovery. If I don't share that, if I'm sitting on that information, yeah. it will burn me to the ground later. Dishonesty by omission. Yes. It's the big one. Yep. It's, mm. Yeah. I love it when the, the way you've put it there because that dishonesty by omission is what will take me out, yeah. if anything. Yeah. So I'm always above board with that sort of stuff. There's always somebody in my life um, that knows what's going on. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's a really strong message to end on. Now, Simon, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for coming in today, for sharing your Thanks story. For me, yeah. yeah, and once again, congratulations on med school. I'll thank see you. you soon, Dr. Simon. Thank you. <laughs>